And that thanks. I forgot to tell you I was using King James today. You did a great job. As soon as you started with the first year, I was like, oh, I forgot to let her know it was King James. Uh, there's a reason I chose King James. So we'll get into that later. So Oswald Bayer is a very well-respected theologian and one of the leading scholars on the life and teachings of Martin Luther. While writing about Luther's understanding of Scripture, Bayer wrote this. It's a very long quote, but it's worth getting through. When I read and hear Scripture, then I note that these stories talk about me. They tell my story. I appear in them long before I obey them. In this way, the text precedes me and the text addresses me. In that I myself am addressed, I am freed at the same time to listen. Even if it means to listen critically with all my powers, with my body and soul, and all my thinking ability. One is not kept from interpreting just because he is being interpreted at the same time. Instead, it is only in this relationship that the doors are even open to a playroom in which one can move about, and certainly not just as a marionette. He goes on. The person who can confess, I believe God has made me and all creatures, is much better prepared to engage Scripture. For Scripture places the hearer into this proper relationship. The individual does not constitute himself. He is assigned a location as creature. Note well, says Luther, that the power of Scripture is this. It will not be altered by the one who studies it. Instead, it transforms the one who loves it. It draws the individual in into itself and into its own powers. The Christian receives his subjectivity, which can evaluate itself critically, and the knowledge that something is written about him in this book, that he himself is interpreted by the text of this book, and thus by its author. I know that is a long and maybe even a challenging quote to start a Sunday morning teaching with. <coughs> but I chose it purposefully, because today we are reopening our series on 1 Corinthians, Excuse me. and we're at a point in the text that it gets very complicated very quickly. Not that Paul is it's never not that complicated. As we begin this third homily, Theology of Sexual Practice, and then continue our way through this Paul's second essay, Men and Women in the Human Family, we are going to constantly be running the risk of getting lost in the so-called forest for all the proverbial trees. In other words, if we are not careful, the specific details that Paul will talk about can obscure the very major point he is really trying to make with those details. Okay? So I started with this quote as a reminder of how we should probably be approaching Scripture. Scripture is meant to speak to us as individuals. As individuals. It is designed so we can find ourselves in the stories. So we can find our own story. And then humbly and authentically ask, what then is my response? Or as Schaefer put it, how shall we then live? 
The necessary humility in approaching Scripture comes with the confession that we are the created. That our place is to stand before God as creature before their creator. The choice to believe, and it is a choice, the choice to believe that God is our creator and that scripture speaks to us is a humble posture that allows, as Bayer wrote, for us to be interpreted and for us to be transformed. The authenticity needed to approach Scripture comes from understanding that Scripture tells my story. My story. I approach Scripture most authentically when I want to know my story, not someone else's story. When we read Scripture for the purpose of informing someone else's life, we are being less than authentic. And this is challenging. Especially if we've read Scripture most of our life to inform others. We miss the value of Scripture. It, the value it has for us because we are not letting it speak to us personally. We are not letting it speak to us as individuals. We are not letting it transform our individual lives. We are too busy thinking it is telling us what to do with other people's lives. But it is not. It is telling us what to do with our own life. Now naturally, of course, as we grow and we're transformed little by little by the grace of God into looking a little bit more like Christ, yeah, we may find we have small nuggets of help to pass along to our neighbors and our loved ones. But... That will always be done with a profound sense of humbleness because we recognize that we need it first and we still need first the transforming power of Scripture in our own lives. See, as we engage Paul's essay on human sexuality and other human practices, I hope today's extended introduction will help a little. Firstly, I hope it helps us realize we don't read this so we can find out what is wrong with someone else and what we need to do to fix them. We read it to find ourselves there and how Christ alone, because of his love for us, will, through grace, wash each of us, <clears throat> sanctify each of us, justify each of us. Secondly, while the details that we are going to encounter in the rest of this essay may not exactly define any of our individual lives. And I think we're going to find that the details don't really define our lives in most of the details Paul is writing about. I mean, take, take the end of chapter 6 here that we're on. I'm pretty confident 
that no one here is going to the temple of Venus or Aphrodite and engaging in sacred prostitution as a form of worship with the priestesses there. So I'm pretty comfortable that these details at the end of chapter 6 are not really for us. And if there is a temple like that in America and you have found it and you're a member, please call me. We'll talk you through that. (laughs) But, here's the warning. That doesn't mean we ignore the passage. Or think it has nothing to say to us. A humble an authentic approach to Scripture will allow the greater idea Paul is talking about to speak deeply to us, even if the details don't. Even if the details don't. And it is exactly this greater idea that is the third reason I am using today as a reintroduction to Corinthians. After the extended break we took over the holidays. So, I'm going to quote Fire again. More on Luther's understanding of Scripture. The pastor came in and started smoking. And I'm not even a doctor. Luther's identification of the subject of theology as the sinning human being in the justifying God. That's what the Bible's about. The sinning human being in the justifying God. His identification of that as the subject of the theology corresponds to the fact that Luther had only one phrase of the entire German Bible typeset in capital letters. Forgives sins. Which he further identified in a marginal gloss as the chief point and the center point of the entire scripture, also of the Old Testament. We are sinners, and God forgives us. That's beautiful. That's the bigger point Paul is constantly writing about. See, Paul clearly said, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, suddenly in his letter, he does not set out to destroy that singular determination. That's what the entire library of Paul's writing is about. But see, if we're not careful, if we don't approach Scripture humbly and authentically for ourselves, the details can almost make us think that Paul is suddenly writing something totally different than his <laughs> Take, for example, how he begins... This next homily we're going to be exploring next week. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves to mankind, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. We all know the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. That's the whole Christian story. Paul himself said, none are righteous. No, not one. That's why we need a Redeemer. That's why we need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ the Lord. So we all know that. We know the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. The problem is, we then take these details he writes about and make them the main point instead of the Gospel. We do this in a number of different ways. 
One, we take this list and we make it the strict definition of unrighteousness. But this is not a list that is a definition of unrighteousness. This is a list of some of the symptoms that unrighteousness can lead to. And that's a huge distinction that we have to remember when we read Paul. Furthermore, this is not an exhaustive list. This is a sampling of symptoms that unrighteousness can lead to. And as we're going to see next week, this is a very specific sampling that Paul chooses very purposefully because these are issues the Corinthian believers are dealing with. None of these things, and I can't say this clearly enough, and I hope it comes across with a little sense of humility, but I'm very passionate about this. None of these things were ever intended to become the universal, supreme, arch-villain, complete, evil contradiction of Christianity. None of them. We've made them that. Paul understood his gospel probably much better than we understand his gospel. Two, by defining this list, I mean, excuse me, by defining unrighteousness so narrowly with this list, we then elevate each particular vice on this list to the reason someone could not be a Christian or will never be a Christian. But our individual vices don't keep us out of heaven. That is not the gospel Jesus or Paul preached. We know that. Paul and Jesus said, listen, regardless of how your unrighteousness presents itself, it's your unrighteousness, not the presentation of it, that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, I came. Because you all need me. It's like when we get the flu. Some people are in bed five days. Some people are in bed two days. Some people get... 100 degree fever and just keep on going. But we've all got the flu. Paul preached that gospel. Why would he ever intend for us to hear another gospel now? Why? Paul said, to the Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, in my Bible, there's no asterisks. Do you know just this week, I, look, I always thought it was asterisk. And this week, 47 years, almost 48, it's asterisk. That was a huge learning moment for me. I almost called you. I said, Dave, is this true? Anyway, in my Bible, there's no asterisk after that statement by Paul that says, 
fine print below in my letter to the Corinthians, except for these ten things. No. No. He didn't say that. So could Paul really have meant that this separates people from God? Number three. This is a big one. If we don't have, happen to have specific issues with this list, meaning, if any of these vices are not our specific problem, well, we risk two very improper responses to Scripture. A, maybe we stop reading the passage because we think it doesn't apply to us. I don't go see priestesses and Venus' temple and have prostitution sacred worship with them. So I'm not going to read it. I don't care. And when we don't read Scripture, we don't let it speak to us. We don't give it a chance to transform us. Because our story's in there somewhere. <clears throat> More, though, because we assume we are above unrighteousness because we don't find our vice in this list. And we've all got vices, but maybe they're just not in this list. We then start using this list punitively to harshly and unkindly judge and condemn others. And that is decidedly a stance that Jesus was very clear in warning us about. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is a profound statement out of the mouth of God. This isn't even out of Paul's. This is God's mouth. And I think we ignore this at our own risk. And notice what he's getting at. It's for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. So when we forget that unrighteousness is the underlying disease and the vices are simply the symptoms, oh, we will rip people for symptoms. And God will go, oh, that's fine. But just so you know, everybody's symptoms are equally as bad because it's the unrighteousness underneath. So if you're really going to rip someone for their particular symptom, you better be sure you've got the underneath disease taken care of in your own life. Because any vice is any vice and is indicative of a deeper problem. And number four, when we set this list up as the definitive definition of unrighteousness, and then when we don't find our particular vice there, we think we're all set. We're good. We're righteous. We are not righteous because of what we do or don't do. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ anyway. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which many of us know and have been hearing from the time we were little, is 
We are righteous because God died for us and gave us His righteousness. Purely by grace. Just as our own do-batting doesn't keep us out of heaven, our own do-gooding doesn't get us into heaven. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, that is the real danger of getting lost in Paul's details. Because while he never forgot his gospel, we tend to. And we tend to end up destroying his gospel when we make the trees more important than the forest. And the details more important than the main point. Which, by the way, is exactly what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. Gordon Fee introduces chapter 6 like this. The gospel itself is at stake. Not simply the resolution of an ethical issue. The Corinthian understanding of spirituality has allowed them both a false view of freedom and of the body. Paul argues directly against their false premises. All at the same time, what we're going to find as we move through this is that, yes, I hope we are going to free Paul from very legalistic understanding, but be warned. Please be warned. Legalism is easy compared to what Paul is trying to get at. Be warned. Paul is so not anything goes. Nor was Jesus. And all you have to do is spend a little time in the Gospels to know that about Jesus. He ripped do-gooders. So they weren't good enough. You see? Yes, the gospel is beautiful. But be prepared. The gospel calls us to a much higher standard than an interpretation of Paul as legalistic ever was. Next week, we're going to start exploring this incredible chapter 6. But for now, let's practice approaching Scripture humbly and authentically. Let's let it speak to us about us. Let it do its slow but sure work of transforming all who engage it in this way. Let's resist strongly the temptation to use the scriptures to find ways to try to change others while we ignore all the ways we need to change. It's filled with the gospel, the good news, all of it, that even in our darkest moments, by choice or by chance, we are still loved by a God who died for sinners. That's good news. That's beautiful news. News I think we need to do well to remember and share with each other. You know, it's funny how we as Christians sometimes forget that we need to hear the gospel. We need to tell each other the gospel because we forget it.
Because we get lost in the details. Let's open our hearts to God speaking healing love into our lives. And then just maybe, maybe, someday we'll find ourselves bringing healing love into the lives of others. Amen.